We'll be reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, that's page 573. Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. You've probably guessed that we're jumping out of Ephesians uh, for a few weeks since we just read from Isaiah. Am I doing something wrong here, or is it on? It's on? Oh, come on, good. Glad to hear that. Uh, We'll be uh, in a couple of different texts over the next couple of weeks, and then we'll be back into Ephesians at the start of the year. Uh, Harvey Dent once addressed the Gotham media, and he famously said this, the night is darkest just before the dawn, and I promise you, pregnant pause, the dawn is coming. You guys Dark Knight fans in here? Really underwhelming response this morning. (laughs) One of my favorite movies, all right. I have never experienced the reality of this darkness more than when driving my family to the deep south where my and Miriam's family, families live. Usually we drive all day and then into the night uh, to get down there, which I can handle no problem. You know, a couple stops at Zaxby's and cook out and I am good to go. Tell me you guys know about Zaxby's here in the north. All right, good. If you are driving south sometime and you see a chicken place called Zaxby's, you're going to want to stop at that. Just trust me and thank me later. And also cook out, because you can buy 47 hamburgers for like 47 cents at that place. But a couple stops at Zaxby's and cook out, and I'm good to go. But one time, and only one time, we drove all night and then into the morning, which caused a major problem for me. I can't do that. I just, I just can't. Those hours just before the dawn are the absolute worst. The face slaps, you know, like the stretching your eyes open, sticking your head out the window. You honestly feel like you could drive off the road at any moment, and it's terribly disturbing to be under that kind of influence while driving. The night truly is darkest just before the dawn, not just in the sky, but in the soul and in the body. 
But, but when morning does finally dawn and the soft glow of the sun brightens the horizon out in front of you ever so slightly, it's like this automatic five-hour energy boost, at least for me. It breathes new life into you, a little bit of energy, changes your whole perspective on the bitter desperation you were feeling just moments ago when it was still pitch black. Well, our text today from Isaiah 9 gives us a front row seat to the moment when the dawn of light first seeped into our world. When the first hints of the morning light began to break through the darkness and new life was breathed into our breaking world. So strap in with me this morning. It's been hours since the last rest stop, okay? The rest of the car is asleep. You're pinching yourself to stay awake. You're plowing forward in silence, holding on for dear life. Put yourself in that position. Even before our text this morning that Dan just read for us, Isaiah has painted a pretty dark, bleak picture of God's people. He's painting the 3 a.m. picture in the drive south. It's not pretty, and it's very dark. You can follow along on screen. Uh, Isaiah 1 says this, My children have rebelled against me, says God. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. It is desolate. It gets even darker in Isaiah 8. He says, Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and of the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. They will wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. I mean, this certainly sounds like at least a spiritual darkest part of the night. And I think what Isaiah is doing here for us is identifying the central problem for humanity, for all of us. The the fundamental issue with us as human beings um, is dealt with right here. And he deals with this specifically when he asks the question, should not a people inquire of their God to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no light. So I say this is humanity's fundamental problem because humanity needs light and they can't make light on their own. No matter how brilliant your mind no matter how competent your motivational skills or gifted, how, how, how much of a gifted leader you are, none of us in and of ourselves have the light needed to expose the darkness of this world and the danger of it and then to heal it up. We can't forge it back together. We, together. we need outside light. We need some kind of light to dawn into our world that isn't produced by us to help us see where we're supposed to be going. We need the dawn. Okay, so you've just looked at your dashboard. It's 4.37 a.m. You know daybreak is just around the corner and you're holding on for dear life, slapping even a little bit more. And then we read verse 1 of Isaiah 9. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Skip to verse 2. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So the first thing that we'll see here together from the text is this. The light comes to expose the danger of darkness. The light comes to expose the danger of darkness. Now, what exactly is this great light that verse 2 is talking about? It's not the sun. It's not the moon. What is it? Is it just like this metaphysical idea that Isaiah is highlighting? No, I think there's a more physical side to this light than you might first suspect. In fact, it's actually a theme throughout the entirety of the scriptures. I found this really interesting, and it starts subtly on the first page of the Bible. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. But here's the problem with that. Where did this light come from? Because God didn't create the sun, moon, and stars until day four. But there was light before all of these sources of light came to be. Where did the light come from? Well, scattered throughout this book, we find out where the light came from. And you can find the answer to that question like in 1 John where it says God himself is light. Or in 1 Timothy 6, God dwells in unapproachable light. Think back even to the Christmas story. Think back to those shepherds on the hillside, keeping watch over their flock by night, gathered there in the relative darkness until suddenly, out of nowhere, this light shines onto them. What was the light? Well, Luke tells us that the glory of the Lord shone all around them. The light was so bright that it scared them. Think about Jesus at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. He had a face that shone like the sun. Or think ahead all the way to the end of the story in this book when John is describing the great city and the new heavens and the new earth. He says this in Revelation 21, 23, and the city had no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. Uh, and we could go on. It's a prominent theme from beginning to end. From the very beginning to the very end, God is light. And God invites us into that light to walk with him in that light. Many years ago, I went spelunking which is just like cave wandering, I think, spelunking, um, funny word. But I went spelunking in some underground caves in West Virginia, and that was utter darkness, a darkness that just engulfs you outwardly, of course, but also you're like, you almost feel it inside of you. It's so dark. And one of our guides, God bless his soul, made us crawl under a huge rock face that had only about 18 inches of clearance. It was maybe 30 yards. It was probably only like three yards, but it felt like 30 yards. And it was legit one of the worst experiences in my entire life. I was literally hyperventilating by the end, overwhelmed by claustrophobia, surrounded by other people who were on the tour with me and just nowhere to pick up my head. It's just, it's a terrible, terrible feeling. But when the guide finally turned his headlamp on, it changed the thing completely, the experience completely. The biggest relief I felt, believe it or not, wasn't seeing the destination. I, I couldn't see the destination because there was still too much distance to cover and there were bodies in, in front of me. The biggest relief to me was knowing where not to go. Uh, Wright took me to a cliff face, not a huge cliff face, but... Um, one, I didn't want to fall down. Um, and then the left closed the space even more into more claustrophobia. Um, and so that headlamp helped protect me from causing myself harm or entering into a more dangerous 
slash claustrophobic situation. That's, uh, that's the idea of this light exposing the darkness here in Isaiah. One of its significant values is exposing you to the dangers that you could succumb to without that light. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to discern what happens to a world without light, right? We don't have to imagine at all. We hop on social media or turn on the news, and we can see a world in darkness without light. Much like Israel of old, our cities are burning with fire. Our cities are full of dejected, rejected, and hungry people. People would rather go anywhere but God for answers right now, right? See, though we are celebrating the first Advent during these few weeks, we kind of live in our own sort of Advent, don't we? Awaiting the light to return or, or maybe to blossom into a full-blown sun, sunrise. There are actually two kinds of Advent in this text. If you were here for, on Tuesday night, we talked about this word Advent, which may be uh, a little new to you. It just means arrival. Um, so as we celebrate Advent, we celebrate the arrival, the arrival of the Redeemer. Um, but we're in a second kind of Advent now, aren't we? We're awaiting the return, the arrival again of our King. So there are two Advents in here. Verse 6 ends the first Advent, but it also kicks off the second season of Advent, the one that we are living through right now, of waiting. Though we use this time of the year to remember the first, and I think we should, it should help us remember that we're not too unlike these Old Testament saints either. We're waiting too. And on some days, it feels like things are just as dark for us as they were for them. Last year, just this last year, I couldn't go visit one of our missionaries because the threat level was so high for Americans to enter into that country. Imagine him living in that country. I just read a story a couple of days ago about a beach that Miriam and I were on last week in Cancun being attacked by a cartel with gunshots. The world has gone totally mad, and our hearts and because their hearts are totally dark, it's because they've shut their eyes to the light, the joy that the light brings. The light comes to expose the danger of spiritual darkness. But thankfully, it doesn't just expose the danger. It actually provides the mean for escape. So now it's, it's 5.37 a.m. There's actually a little bit of light out on the horizon. And here's what you see in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And what do they see once the light filters through? What does the light help them to see? Verse 3. Look at it. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. So number two this morning, the light comes to increase our joy in God. First, it exposes the danger of living without the light, and then it comes to increase our joy in God. And as the light begins to seep out over the darkness, it begins the inevitable process of, of giving us and bringing us joy. And it provides joy in at least two ways here. First, it multiplies the nation in verse 3, and then it removes oppression in verses 4 and 5, it multiplies the nation and then it removes oppression. So first light comes and it multiplies the nation. So if you've ever been to or watched an Eagles game, you might know the difference between the half-full stadium during a preseason game 
and the standing-only room in the stadium in week two of the playoffs. The energy level is just completely different in those two games. There are more voices in the playoff game, more energy, more expectation to cheer on their team. But if you're not in the sports, if you're more into music or something, just imagine the difference in the energy between the cover band and then the, the main act. Between the cover and the main, what happens? The building fills up more than it already was. The crowd multiplies and the energy ramps way up. In both cases, it's more fun when the building is full, when there's more people and more energy and more attention being brought to what uh, everyone is there to watch. This is what the light will do when it comes, according to Isaiah. The light was coming to multiply the nation. You can almost picture that light advancing out over the darkness slowly. More and more people being called into its glorious light. One more person, one more voice, one more soul in the kingdom of light. And with each advance of the light comes more joy and more potential for more joy and another voice to sing with joy for the light. This has kind of been the special part of being a part of a, a growing church, hasn't it? At least it has been for me. When new voices come and we lift up our songs together at the top of our lungs, it just becomes a sweet, surreal, very emotional experience. It was for me this morning. Hands raise, tears roll, drooping shoulders lift, our spirits rise within us. Why? Because the light has come to increase our joy in God. And it does this by increasing the number of God's holy people. The light multiplies the nation. And then verse, verses 4 and 5, it removes the oppression. It removes oppression. So Isaiah gives two kind of illustrations here of wild, celebratory joy to describe the people's future happiness. The picture is of a, uh, a really good harvest and a victory in battle. Look at the second half of verse 3. It says, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The light brings rejoicing, joy, gladness. When I was young, my uncle was a contestant on Wheel of Fortune. And he was the dude who made it to the final puzzle. And even though he didn't solve it, he still won some really great stuff. I've slept in a bed that he won that night very many times. He still has it in his house. So basically, because my uncle was on that show, me and Pat Sajak are boys. Um, and Vanna White. Uh, Vanna White? Um, but you know the feeling of exhilaration when you win something, right? Whether it's big or small. Maybe you've seen The Price is Right or something similar when someone has won some, some major cash and they're feeling that exhilarated feeling of knowing that their needs are going to be covered and more, at least in the immediate time. That's the kind of exhilarating joy that the light brings. A jumping for joy kind of exhilaration. What could deserve this kind of joy? In verse 5, if you look, the bloody uniforms and the muddy boots from the violent battle are burned. And why? Because they're no longer needed. They don't need the uniforms and the boots. So they burn them in this epic bonfire. Oppression has ceased and victory is won. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And how is this? What signaled the end of the battle? 
So much so that the, at the end, they could burn their boots and uniforms because they wouldn't need them anymore. Well, get this battlefield in your mind. Picture it in your mind's eye. On one side of the field is the evil army cloaked in dangerous darkness. It's Satan. It's all of the evil tyrants and the big shots of history that put their fists in the face of God. It's a formidable army that neither you or I would ever have a shot against. But then on the other side of the battlefield, we see God leading out his army. And it's almost laughable. It's God and his little toddling boy that he's holding hands with. That's it. That's the army. The Son of God. How will the good news of verse 5 happen where we burn all the, the battle paraphernalia? Through a birth announcement about a little boy. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. What a picture to see that battlefield. All of the evil over here and the little baby boy over here clashing in the middle. One reason to believe Christianity is true is that no one could have thought this up. It's wild. God's answer to the insanity in our world right now and for generations past is not a big, impressive, daunting army. It's a humble baby boy. But who is this baby boy? Who is this son that is born to us? The son wasn't just born to a woman. Unto you is given this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Who is the sun that acts as a light, exposing the darkness and increasing our joy? He is the light that comes to bring limitless peace. Of course, we all know, right, we're, we're here, we're in a, in a Christian church. We know that the light is Jesus. But how can we know, though? We know, but how can we really know? Is there something here in the text that might sturdy up our faith a little bit this morning? Here's how we can know that a text written almost a thousand years before Jesus was ever born was talking directly about Jesus. I hope this stirs up your faith in this book today, Christian. I, I borrowed this illustration from a, a pastor friend, but I wonder if you've ever played that game of memory. I wonder if you've ever lost a game of memory to a young child like I have, the one with matching cards, you know? Uh, you know, though, that feeling of smug satisfaction when you flip over one and then flip over the next one and it's a match. We'll pop back up to the beginning of our passage there in verse 1, and this is the first card that we will flip over. The year is 750 B.C. You can follow along on the screen. I think there's a, a table that we have here. You can follow along with the year. It's 750 B.C. We're looking at Isaiah 9, uh, 1. Maybe it's not going to show up. If not, that's okay. No problem. Um, it's 750 B.C., do, you, do we know what year it is now that I've said it four times? Um, it's, seven, it's 750 B.C. Um, we're looking at Isaiah 9.1. Here's what it says. Uh, in the future, he has made glorious the way of the sea in the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee. So what is Isaiah talking about here? This future glory and honor that's going to come to this little obscure town or area called Galilee. Well, here's the second matching card. Get ready to feel that smug, satisfying feeling. Um, if you want to look at it, you can. Um, it's in Matthew 4, but I'll read it for you. So about 750 years later, uh, Matthew 4, 12 to 16 says this. Now Jesus withdrew into Galilee, and he lived there by the sea, 
so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and on them a light has dawned. Um, What area did Isaiah say that God would make glorious with light? He said Galilee. And how did he make it glorious 750 years after Isaiah penned those words? Well, Jesus moved there and brought gospel light there. And so the Isaiah 9-1 card, manufactured 750 years before its match, matches exactly the the Matthew 4-12 card. God's word, if you read it carefully, is really an amazing book. The Spirit of God breathed these words out in Isaiah 9 before they ever came true in Matthew 4. In Matthew 4, yes. So that we could have faith and confidence that these are God's words and that they shed light into the darkness of our hearts and into our world. Well, as you survey that battlefield with that little baby boy, we find out his name, his names, his titles, and we find out his purpose. Verse 6, his name. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then verse 7 gives us his purpose. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So finally this morning, the light comes to bring everlasting and limitless peace. Everlasting and limitless peace. He's the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We don't have time to unpack the full robust meanings of each of these titles this morning. We'll save that for another day. But I do want us to notice verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Limitless government, limitless peace. Look, no matter your political persuasion this morning, let's just take a moment to acknowledge that we are for the expansion of government if Jesus is the one doing the governing, right? Jesus is the governor reigning for the peace and joy of his people. He's the only government agent, the only government player who actually knows how to secure this peace and joy for his people and cause them to fully flourish as human beings. Once this reality sort of blossoms into full bloom, we'll never be chanting four more years ever again. Praise God, there will be no end, Isaiah says. There's a whole new world order being put forward here. Some of you are lifelong Democrats. Some of you are lifelong Republicans. And you cannot fathom how the other person thinks the way that they do. It's inconceivable. But one day, their politics will be corrected, and your politics will be corrected, and the government will be upon his shoulders. There's legit political hope here in this book during a politically depressing landscape in this day. Political hope in this book during a politically depressing landscape in this day. We should live in this reality as we await its full expression, when the government is clearly and fully and finally on his shoulders in a way that is unignorable. If you have strong political opinions, great. If you love politics, Wonderful, but by God, love Jesus more than those persuasions. If our emotions related to politics overwhelm our joy in him, it's time to reevaluate, reevaluate where we're at with this, guys. Me too. Let me say it again. If our emotions related to politics overwhelm our joy in Jesus, 
it's time to reevaluate where we're at with our politics. Stop the rolled eyes and the negative commentary about the other side. We are on his side, and the government is on his shoulders. Here in this place where Jesus especially reigns, we love one another. Our eyes light up when we see the Republican Christian. Our hearts warm when we see the Democrat Christian. Our eyes roll when we see the independent because they just can't make up their mind. (laughs) Just kidding. Don't rage. Rejoice that the government will be upon his shoulders and of his peace there will be no end. Hang on to that during this crazy time. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. We're going to be like 50 billion years into eternity together. And we're going to look at each other and be like, what, what could he possibly think of next? There's nothing more to do. But of the increase, there will be no end. It only gets better from here, people. Only gets better. So what do we have to fear? In our weakness, the mighty God stands behind us, steadying us. We are so accustomed to things worsening over time, aren't we? We get tired of songs. We get tired of foods, tired of relationships, tired of cars or you name it, whatever. I worked at Chick-fil-A for six months, and imagine this. I could not eat a waffle fry for more than a year. (laughs) Chick-fil-A sauce was disgusting. I've come back to the light. (laughs) But we get tired of amazing gifts in our world. But God is like, hold up, let me show you a whole new way. The increase of the reign of Christ will only ever grow and get better. This is mind-blowing. It's impossible to wrap our little minds around. God is explosively good in this baby king. These are important truths to hang on to. When loved loved ones face cancer, when loved ones or parents or aunts and uncles pass, when a virus rips us apart, both medically and physically, and also politically, when you're tired of being single, or frustrated with unwanted sinful desires, in all of those things, hear this. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. 7.33 a.m. now. The sun has fully broken through. It's spreading, it's warming, it's giving you a little bit of energy in life. Let me encourage you during this holiday season to look at the Christmas light light for your hope. Perhaps this morning you should consider where you have been looking for light and life. What have you been tapping into to give you a little flicker of hope, of worth, of joy, of, of happiness? Maybe you've attached your hope to a particular piece of legislation to pass, or for the fear and strangeness of our time to pass. Maybe your heart has been drawn to your favorite political pundit or commentator or whatever. Have you done what God's people did there at the end of Isaiah 8, 18 to 22, and they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But hear Isaiah's words of rebuke this morning and repent like the Israelites should have. He asked them, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If we do not speak according to God's word, there will be no dawn for us. 
to make sense of the darkness and to avoid its dangers and its pitfalls. We desperately need God's light. So let me just encourage you to seek God's light this season. Just be holy. If you haven't been reading, read the word. If you haven't been praying, forget the things that are behind and look forward. Get on your knees. Get in this book. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote the lyrics of I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day. He wrote those lyrics on Christmas Day in 1863. The, the song speaks of the irony of hearing Christmas bells during the American Civil War. It's this joy mixed with grief, light mixed with dark, life mixed with death. These are all sort of ironic cocktails of good and bad together. What you may not know about the song is that Longfellow's son had just been severely wounded in the war a few weeks before, the, before he wrote these words. Two years earlier, his second wife of 18 years, to whom he was very devoted, was fatally burned in an accidental fire. And five years before that, his first wife died. So he was no stranger to grief and darkness. He feels what some of you, he felt what some of you feel this morning. So these words come with some depth. They come with grit. They come with scars. They come with a sympathetic limp to what you walked in here with this morning. So with these bells ringing in the distance on Christmas Day in 1863, with these realities haunting him about all the brokenness and sorrow in his life, he put pen to paper and he wrote these words. He says, In despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You feel that in your bones this morning? This is us. Sin is strong. Brokenness is real. Our world seems to mock the angel's song that Christmas night. But not for long and not forever. Even if we don't know all the reasons why God allows evil to continue for this season. We know the ending, and so does this Christmas song. He goes on to say this. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. A guy named Trevin Wax sort of summarizes this for us, too. I put his quote on screen for you as well. The reason we hope for this grand finale that this song just spoke about at the end of history is because the little baby born in Bethlehem, flanked by animals and laid in a splintery manger, grew up to become the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knew suffering, not from a distance, but up close. He didn't give us an answer to satisfy all of our questions. He gave himself to satisfy all of our hurts, to take away our sins, to wipe away our tears, and to strip away our sorrows. I don't know if you noticed this morning in this text, but really nothing in it was about what we're supposed to do. It's all about what God has done. This is a relief. It's pure gospel. Our only gig here is to fall into God's arms with belief and trust that he will bring this to pass. 
This is about God coming down to rescue us from all the damage that we have done and all the stuff we hate about our lives. He started the repair, and we're just waiting for him to finish, and he will. And I'm close with this. Here's the coolest thing about all of this. He doesn't do it reluctantly. Our text closes today in the final verse with this phrase, the zeal of the Lord has done this. He's not like, do you guys have any idea how much this is costing me? God is not reluctantly gracious. He is zealously gracious. He is so dialed in to all that we need, and he's zealous about providing for it. I was rebuked by this this week. Sometimes I like to remind my kids about how much I spent on X and how much they should appreciate it. God does not love us in that way. The zeal of the Lord has provided for us in this way. That word zeal there is a burning fire in God's chest to do this for us. It's the same word that's used in Song of Solomon for the intense love the bride and groom feel for each other. Over in Isaiah 42, the same word is used to describe a warrior who's like psyching himself up for battle. Imagine the guy in the locker room like punching the locker, just so pumped up to get out on the field. This is the way God feels about providing for you. He is zealous for you. Zephaniah speaks of the fire of God's zeal. God, and hear this personally about you as an individual, God is not dispassionate about you. He is not dispassionate about Josh or Miriam or Dave or whoever. His fiery zeal is what has saved you. God is on fire for everything that we need. Harvey Dent was right. The dawn is coming. Actually, Harvey, the dawn did come, and we're just waiting for the full-blown sun to show up now. And I can promise you, it's coming. And when it does, you don't want to miss it. Hold on to hope, friends. Just like Old Testament saints had to hold on, we hold on to. As sure as the light dawned in Christ, it will come to shine in full glory and power with limitless peace. Jesus will return to reign in power, and it will be magnificent. The zeal of God will do this. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Will you pray with me? God, we're reminded again just how needy we are. We feel it every week. As our lives drone on and our bodies weaken and fall apart, I pray that we would set our hopes on the kingdom that is to come, on the limitless peace and limitless government of the King of kings and of the Lord of lords. I pray that this would fuel joy in our hearts, even as tears roll down our cheeks and we suffer ourselves and watch others suffer. We hang on to these truths this day. Amen.